Welcome back to BSA by Design, a podcast about transforming healthcare, educational, and research facilities through expert design and insight. I'm your host, Brian Moore, and in this episode, we're going to be talking to Terry Joy about how she got into healthcare and nursing and the various roles that she's held in her career. We also talk about the importance of master planning and creating a whole campus experience. This is a great conversation about how planning can really be inclusive and an immersive experience to gain better outcomes for users and patients and help the budget. Additionally, we talk about how planning goes hand-in-hand with preparedness and how BSA seeks to find solutions to providers it may not have thought of in these initial stages of the project. But before we dive in, I'd like to introduce our guest. Terry Joy is the Director of Planning at BSA Life Structures, a graduate of Indiana State University. Terry has certifications in EDAC, CN, TCRN, and spent over 30 years as a registered nurse and in clinical operations and leadership with Eskenazi Health and Union Hospital. At Eskenazi, Terry was the Director of Trauma Services, Preoperative Services, Orthopedic Services, and Clinical Education. She served as an education board member for the Nursing Institute of Healthcare Design for three years. Welcome to BSA by Design, Terry. Thanks. Thanks for welcoming me this morning. Yeah. Where does your, let's start with this, where does your passion for, for healthcare come from? And can you kind of walk us through some of your career experiences up to this point? I can. So I have had a couple different instances when I was growing up where one was really early in my my life. I was a fourth grader. I was off on a snow day and my brother and I were at home with my mom and he was working out in the basement and we were cleaning and all of a sudden nobody heard him in the basement. Always a terrifying thing yeah. for a parent. <laughs> so I walked so my mom sent me downstairs like go check on your brother and he was unconscious. Oh on the my. floor. And so I rolled him over and had done first aid classes and whatnot. And he had doing weights and the weight had fallen. Like, oh, on yeah. So, and I felt like I responded pretty well. That was... For fourth grade, for fourth I, would grade. Say, I would say, yeah. <laughs> and then kind of as I progressed through high school and into college... I had a scholarship to Indiana State University. I'm from Terre Haute. Mm-hmm. Decided I would give nursing a shot. And I became a nurse when I was 20. Wow. And just kind of from there, really like the problem solving. I, I like the random interactions with people because when you walk in as their clinician or nurse, like there's a, a bit of trust established very fast. Yeah. which doesn't happen in other settings. So I enjoyed that a lot. So I started in Terre Haute for a period of time. And then, I mean, you've been with BSA for how long now? Five and a half years. Yeah. And so what did you do before that? Just um, so our audience knows. No, it's okay. <laughs> I moved to Indianapolis in 1997 and got a job at Wishard Hospital is what it was called then. And it was a public hospital. Yeah. I felt like, I feel like my, I had a personal mission or a personal value system of, you need to give back to your community. And at a public hospital, I feel like that's where you interact on all levels. You may have the president of a company or you may have the person that is homeless. And so understanding all of those pieces of society, I think it gave me a much better 
perspective about life and what I could do to maybe make an impact. Right. So I was an ER nurse there and then I became the director of trauma. And then I just kept saying yes when people would ask me to help them. It wasn't a magical career. It's just if people were like, can you help me? And I'm like, sure. So it evolved from the director of trauma to the director of clinical education for nursing the director of perioperative services and orthopedic services and surgical services. So those are the four titles or the four departments I have when I left and came here in 2018. I would imagine you've got to have a, a different mindset too when you're when you're working in the ER, right? Like yes. I mean, can you talk through some of that a little bit? I was a, I was a, um, so at Union Hospital, I were, I started on a normal, just, we would call it a med surge unit and I did orthopedics and neurosurgery. So post-operative patients, which was good because when you first get out of school, I don't think you're just like, you have your training, but you still are training. Right. I mean, not to scare anybody on the podcast, but now what do I do? Now what do (laughs) I do? Now I was licensed. What do I do? Yeah. And then I went to the intensive care unit was an open heart recovery nurse. And you have one patient when mm-hmm. you're an open heart recovery nurse yeah. and multiple people to help you. And then when I went to the emergency department, you don't have one patient. You have whatever comes in for the day and you're assigned an area. At least that's how ours worked when I started. And you may have 20 beds and two nurses. Um, and so it's just very different. You, pri- you learn to prioritize very quickly how to assess people, how visibility is important because I may not see 20 people in an hour, but I like physically go over and talk to them, but you need to be able to look around the room and see if there's any distress. But the mindset in the ER is, I think it's, you know, people will call it treat and street. They, you want to come in, you want to be seen quickly. But I think the thing about the ER is nobody really wants to be in the ER. Like nobody plans to go to the ER Correct. that day. I don't go to the ER today. I don't go to the ER today because <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited. I'm having chest pain. Like no one's <laughs> right. excited to see you. No. And a lot of times it's probably something very tragic, at least in our ER. We were yeah. a level one trauma center with about a 30 to 40% penetrating trauma rate, which is gunshot wounds. Wow. And violence. And so you learn to be a support system for the patients, their families and the community. That was the thing you had to learn was also part of your job because in the ICU, open heart recovery, that was planned. People planned to have open heart, not that it wasn't scary, but but it was scheduled scheduled and and planned. The car accident or the shooting or that's not planned. And so just trying to help people through crisis management. And, And that's the piece that I liked because it was very, um, I wasn't sure for nine months, I'll be honest. I kept both jobs. I worked in Terre Haute on the weekends, worked over here because I wasn't, I was like, I don't know (laughs) if I can cut this or not. Like I had one patient here, now I have 20. But then I just grew to enjoy it. It really adapted. I did. It keeps you on your toes and there was nothing that was ever the same every day. You took a plan. You had a plan and you had protocols, but the situations were never the same. So taking taking all that experience that you have, how has that helped shape your perspective on design and spaces and layout when it comes to these healing spaces? I think that working in an old, our facility was 150 years old and it was multiple buildings connected. And so you just made it work. There was not really any other choice. Your space is your space. Your space you gotta, was your space. Yeah. 
you made it work. You may have to do some very creative things at times in an institution like that. And then I had the opportunity while I was there that in Marion County, um, a referendum went through and they supported building a new hospital. We were a part of the user groups and we were a part of building that hospital, which was a little bit of a, was a little bit of a strange concept for us because we didn't know any different. You know, I right. knew that I had to get a patient to surgery in five minutes if they were bleeding to death. And so however you had to make that happen, you had to make it happen. Right. I didn't really realize until they started building the new building that you could maybe facilitate healthcare better with a functioning space if the adjacencies were correct, if you could make that experience better and that it would really increase your ability to provide better healthcare. I think that was the most eye-opening thing for me working with a design team first as a clinician. I was like, what do you mean you can put that there? Oh, that's perfect. It doesn't have to always be. I don't have, it doesn't have to be over here, like, you know, a half a mile down the, down the road to get my, Elevator, or my on a one elevator floor, or yeah. So that so was interesting. Is that me. some of the appeal of when you when you moved out of out of the the roles that you had into mm-hmm. working at BSA? It was like I could I could do this with a lot of different clients and, and a lot of different spaces. I think so. It was um, it was very eye opening when we moved into the new hospital, mm-hmm. and things were not as hard. And you, I don't think anyone realized how that affects your mental health and your oh, yeah. well being and your ability to provide maybe more care or better care or. Maybe you're not as grouchy as a care provider um, because it's easier. And not that it's ever easy to provide care in an ER, but... It doesn't need to be harder based on yes. the layout of the... Yeah. And, and we were skeptical. I'll, I'll be honest. I was skeptical. I'm like, I don't know if that's going to make that big a difference. But I would say about six months to a year in, we all kind of sat down and we debriefed and you know had our punch list of things that needed fixed. But um, it was fascinating to watch the staff. A lot of people didn't feel like they deserved a facility that nice. <laughs> right. The patients would say stuff like, is this... Am I in the right place? So you had this disparity in healthcare of where we would take care of people that didn't maybe have as many resources, but it was still the public hospital, but it didn't look like the public hospital anymore. I think that was part of my appeal of being going through that so that maybe we could share that experience with other people. BSA did work with us um, for transition planning. So Terry Thurston and Kathy Clark, who were operational planners before me, were with us every third week of the month for two years and did our transition and activation planning and kind of guided us through that. And we really... So you're elbow to elbow together. Yeah, we really, we really grew to rely on them because we, we didn't know. None of us had ever... None of us had ever gone from one facility to another. We were tasked with keeping the facility open to the community. We were not allowed to divert. Um, that's a status of where ambulances don't come to you. We weren't allowed to do that. And we stayed open the entire move. They were an integral part. And I thought, and then we've all became friends because you're with people during a crisis yeah. and it establishes a connection. Absolutely. And so I just kept in contact with them. So when Kathy retired here, Terry reached out and that's kind of how I came to BSA. So let's let's talk a little bit about defining what master planning means in the context of healing. You've started to touch on it a little bit. What mm-hmm. are you what are you looking at at the outset? I think master planning and Monty Hoover's been a 
been the person who I've done the majority of the master plans with. So I've learned a lot from him. It's a great resource. I think master planning is really the whole view of the facility, the campus, even coming onto the campus, kind of how the building sits in the community. So I like that piece because I think that connection is important. It's really that whole campus experience, how the building works, how the people work. Is it enough space? How do you how do you start your journey into healthcare and make sure that you're hitting all those things, not just here's the building, here's the unit, and we're going to build a bed yeah. tower kind of so, thing. So really journey mapping it from pulling into the parking lot yes. or up to the ER, mm-hmm. whatever the, the space that you're dealing with is, and what's that look like? Yes. Right? And I think the, the journey map of the present And what you'll see, the master planners that are architects I've worked with, they journey map all the way out to about 20 years. There's a lot of what ifs. So if we put the building here and you have a population grow, where could you expand? So there's usually this current state assessment and then what's it going to look like in five to 10 years? And then what are the opportunities for this site 20 years in? The client likes that because I think they use that as their what ifs if they're mm-hmm. sitting there trying to figure a out where they're of sorts. Yes. Yeah. Let's let's touch on that a little bit. What are some of the evolving needs and challenges in healthcare design currently? I mean, like you said, you've got a ton of past experience of being in it and where does it seem like it's going? I think some of the challenges right now are I think staffing is a huge challenge. Not that that wholeheartedly affects design, but it's starting to because you're very lean with your people, but yet you're still taking care of maybe one or two environments. How do you save an institution money, make it the most efficient and still support? I think the layouts of the building, what I'm seeing is that's becoming much more important to the client. Whereas before you would plan with maybe the intensive care unit, the ED separate, the OR separate, interventional radiology separate. And now you have to look at that Okay, who's more integrated, more integrated and yeah. who is taking who's responsible and can we keep those areas close to save you some time versus you can be over here for several hours and start. We're starting to see that where they want to share responsibilities, especially with ancillary staff, with pharmacy lab. Um, maybe registration is serving more than one purpose at the beginning of a hospital. I hear lots of people, and including myself, we're starting to compare things to an airport where oh, there's yeah. so many activities in healthcare now. Everyone has a phone. Am I registered? Do I really need to stop at this desk and wait in this line, or can I go directly where I need to go? And I think that that's really important. The skeptical side of me says make sure your infrastructure supports that. Do you yeah. have IT? Do you have backup systems? Because if this goes down, then you're back to 1985. It differs from location, right? So if you have a rural hospital versus an urban hospital, they may not have some of that infrastructure, correct? That's true. What do you see as the strength of BSA's approach to master planning for some of our healing clients? I think the approach is multidisciplinary. I use that word a lot. Integrated is another word. BSA has a multidisciplinary team that can match their multidisciplinary team because there's typically a physician. There's typically the C-suite or the administrators. Um, And so what you see is it starts to align with BSA. And then if you put that group together in a planning team, then what starts to happen is like people will talk to like people and you can translate for them. And then everybody has their own language, right? Right. And so I think it takes more than just the architect and the facility person Mm -hmm. seeing that traditional model. But it also takes more than just me talking to the CNO. 
Um, The CFO is the one that is in charge of the money Mm -hmm. and they want to understand the return on investment. It's not really that different from a hospital. It's just aligning those roles and making sure people can support one another. I think it makes people feel more heard that, oh, you, you hear that in your company. I'm not in my company. Let me make sure you understand my perspective. Yeah. My voice is being heard Mm -hmm. throughout this entire process. Yeah. I think that's important. What are some of those common challenges faced? I mean, you just mentioned a couple things, you know, voice being heard and, and some of the challenges that, what are some of the other common challenges that you face during the planning process? Remembering for us, remembering that they're still running a healthcare institution, whether your master planning an outpatient campus or inpatient campus, just really trying to understand I can't have them for three days to sit and interview them. So really, we've employed a few different tactics with some of the planning as far as we've done surveys. So we've tried to give different options to collect information. So that they can respond to them on their own time and you're not trying to block something off. And and you need information for planning. You have to have data. You have to have volume numbers. You have to understand. you, You need to gather or explore if you look at our innovation framework. During the exploration phase of planning, it's much more intense if we're trying to project what that campus is going to look like. Right. That can be very that can be very cumbersome to the client. So what we try to do is say, I think one of the things that helps if I know what medical record system you have, then I know what reports they already do. Right. So we're like, just give us those, and we'll we'll do our and best. You can parse through them. Yeah. Gathering that information, and then I think going to the campus, walking the campus, anything that we can do independently to prepare to make sure their time's well spent, um, I think is important. There's a lot of, it feels like, uh, consulting based on your experience too, right? You're, yes. You're investigating and getting a lay of the land, and then you're able to, to pull in your knowledge. And... It is. And responsibility for patient satisfaction and staff satisfaction at a hospital makes you understand that parking and entry onto the campus, if that goes poorly, it is really hard to recover your patient satisfaction scores because people are anxious coming to the campus. And if, if they it's don't want to feel lost, if they don't know where to go, then what happens is they just become more anxious. They're frustrated by the time they get to where they are, they're having a hard time processing. And so even if it goes perfectly from that point on, it's really hard to pull that pull mm-hmm. that to a positive experience if the first 20 minutes they don't know what they're doing. They, they've already had a bad experience before right. they even get to the caregiver, right. and they're already anxious about something. Maybe it's a test or a right. MRI that they need or whatever. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. But parking is parking and entry onto the campus becomes a very hot topic for everyone. I think parking is a hot topic for everybody it everywhere, is. right? Like It is. Where am I going to park? Well, you think about, you do that, right? I pick where I'm going to go eat based on whether or not I can park easily right. and what time of day it is. We just recently announced that we're going to be moving our studio, right? And yes. it was one of the first questions that, where am I parking? You know, right. It's, it is. It's what it people is. care about. It's yeah. what they care about. Yeah. What are some of the strategies for mitigating these challenges and ensuring successful implementation of a master plan? I think that we start with using our internal benchmarks. We also use national benchmarks just because people want to know if what they're doing is like what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, and they want it. There's comfort in that, right? There is comfort in that. And I also think that I feel like healthcare, anyone that's working in healthcare, 
goes to work to make a difference. I like that. And maybe that's not true, but that's just my vision of individuals that work in healthcare. They want to make a difference. Utilizing benchmarks, helping people understand how they're currently functioning, whether or not they're high. There are some people that we will do master plans for and they're functioning very highly. So you want to keep what they're doing well, but you also have to help them understand what could be improved. It's a form of criticism, which is challenging sometimes, but I find that as if we state it in a factual manner, but we use the seven flows of healthcare, we just apply it on a larger level. We still look at the patient experience, we look at the staff experience, we look at how do you bring equipment onto this campus. I mean, if you ever do master planning with an imaging team, they wanna know how they're gonna change out an MRI and where can that be done? That becomes a very key point of where you put it for future. And the, I think the most interesting thing is there each department has their key things that are top of mind because they've had to handle it when it didn't go well. So they don't want it to not go well again. So just listening to the client, the client will tell you what's not working. Just by talking. But just yeah. by talking. Because yeah. as, a, as a clinician, you'll talk about, you don't typically talk about that day was great. You know, I did a really good job. You, The things you remember are things that didn't go well, that you either overcame and made a difference, or it didn't go well and you don't ever want to do it again. Now, those may be... That's just a human reaction, right? Yeah. It's a perception of I, people tend to remember the negative mm -hmm. or what didn't go well more than they will the positive. So when we capture those, so we'll capture that when we do the initial interview, and then we try to categorize that into priorities for them. So we'll do like an eight to 10 priority one page sheet that says, here's what we've heard. Here's what we've seen. Here's what we think the issues are. What do you think? And then we collectively agree on that. And then we start to work on the planning for them because I think they want to be a part of it. They don't, individuals don't like to be told at all. Ask right. them, here's what I see. Here's the 10 things that we've identified. Do you agree with that? Do we miss anything? And then we collectively get that at the very beginning. And then that kind of drives the plan versus us planning what we think is this is what we think, this will be better, blah, blah, blah. And then they're not happy that they weren't a part of it. What are some of the advantages of having a well-executed master plan in healthcare? I think that it helps your budget and your priorities. When we do a well-executed master plan, we typically do a facility assessment. We look at your equipment. We look at kind of what your current needs are, where you could potentially expand. And usually there, there will develop three options for them. And if it's a more focused planning project, like it's more of a mini master plan and it's maybe they want it for the next five years, then we try to tie a cost sheet to that. Because when you do your budget for healthcare, if you're doing your hospital budget, you have a three to five year budget or strategic plan, and you're trying to figure out what can what can come out of my normal operating budget mm -hmm. versus now I need to ask for more money from the system. So if they have a 10 year plan in front of them and they can see and they can match that to their volume data and to their financials, it helps them prioritize what may need to go forward or not. At least it's a place to start for them. In a lot of ways, the, the master planning is definitely impacting this cost efficiency, flexibility, and scalability over it that is. period of time, right? It is. And they will, what you'll see is if, if a facility has built a new facility, then a lot of times the architect 
on, or the team will do a, a master plan or say, here's, because as they're building the building, they see what could be in the future. A lot of times people will contact us and say, can you validate this? Is somebody this, else has done the master somebody plan. Somebody else Can has done an initial master yeah. plan. They did this five to 10 years ago. Here's what we're seeing in healthcare. We'll, tell us what you think and what are the differences and is it still accurate? So we use it as a starting point and do a QA, QC on it, but it is a roadmap for them. Can you discuss integrating sustainability and wellness into master planning and the impact on patient outcomes and staff satisfaction? Sustainability and wellness, I think functioning in a clean air clean environment became much more important during COVID. I did not know as a clinician when I was working until I gained responsibility for the operating room about air exchanges and what was negative, what was positive. You, you don't know that if you don't work in a sterile environment. But when, when COVID occurred and people were concerned about being quote unquote well, they wanted to know if how often is the air being exchanged? Is it outside air? Those things. And I will say that the facility I worked at is 100% outside air. And Sam was the engineer on that project Sam when we Jackson. were Sam yeah. Jackson when we were building and and really understanding how how staff wellness, staff safety is affected by sustainability because that can really tax that system. I think thinking of those things upfront is really important. And that was a conscious decision by the CEO from a wellness perspective. She wanted everyone in that hospital to not have, quote unquote, it smell like a hospital. And she wanted people to have fresh air because the literature says fresh air helps you heal. So she's a physician. That was her conscious, but it turned out to be, and it's a lead building. I think it's legal that the facility I worked in, but it's just thinking of all those things ahead of time and understanding how it affects the building. You just mentioned the pandemic. How are factors like telemedicine and pandemics influencing planning and design? You started to touch on it with the air. What were sure. some other things? We developed in the planning department for a project. We talked about a flexible platform of care. Areas now need to be able to be used. This is just our opinion. Areas now need to be used for more than one thing. Mm -hmm. And you really have to start thinking about what ifs. Part of my background, I had NIMS training, which is National Incident Management System training. So I doing disaster management, environmental issues. You're the person at the hospital that has to work on that team. And there's a lot of planning that goes into, if I have 40 people coming in, where am I going to put them? So if I have a mass casualty at a Colts game, where does everybody go? If, if, there's a, if I have multiple people that come from overseas and they all have a fever and they have some sort of illness, where are they going to go? So some of the things that occurred during my career... I am a little bit of a, I won't say a prepper, but I am kind of a prepper. Like what, like what if, what well, if this happens? <laughs> right, I am a planner. So I think asking scenario questions during planning for pandemics, I, what I've heard people say is, oh, that, well, that was just during the pandemic. That's not going to happen again. It's going to happen again. We want to be, the reason that, that it, you didn't do a lot of preparedness before some of these disasters or pandemics is because it's too expensive and it gets value engineered out. And there are just some things that from, I think we're responsible as the healthcare team or as experts in planning to say, 
okay, where are you going to put that? And where are you going to get the oxygen? Where are you going to get all the inform stuff that you need? Mm -hmm. Does that area have Wi-Fi? Because you have electronic medical record. What if you lose power? What are you going to do? And when you say some of those things, sometimes the team's like, don't bring that up. <laughs> don't bring that up because it's too complicated. Right, we don't want to talk about it. We don't it. want to we talk about it. We don't want to think it. about it. A few, so we'll, we'll use scenarios or maybe one or two scenarios and then put what we think the key issues are just to to get them to think about that. Yeah. Because you do have to be able to flex into, we call them soft spaces. So where's your conference room? Where's your break room? Where are you gonna triage people that are walking? Should you cover your ambulance bay? I like a covered ambulance bay that's enclosed because that becomes my triage. But it's just those things to try to get the clients to think about. Let's talk about that collaborative process and the role of collaboration. Uh, but this time with between architects, engineers, interior designers, and planning with the healthcare professionals and clients in terms of understanding the unique needs of each facility. So how do our multi-disciplines play into that? I think that what I have found to be successful over the last year is the integration has to be very high. If you are working with the larger the client, the more integration you have to have because that's how they function. So I think you brought it up earlier at a critical access hospital, the team of four or five people may be overwhelmed if we take a team of 20 people or whatever. So you got to kind of weigh where you are. But I also think some of the challenges are preparing for the meeting internally before you go in in front of the client and really vetting some of those things out between the architect, the planner, the interior designer, because sometimes it is siloed here, just like it's siloed. Sure. It, I mean, that's just human nature. nature You're doing business. your yeah. thing. This is what I think. And you assume that everybody understands your thought process and they don't. Well, so, like, like we were saying earlier, everybody speaks a different language right. sometimes, right? Yeah. So what we've so what we've done on a couple projects is we'll sit and maybe have an hour conversation of these are the decisions we need to get to. Here's here's how the clinicians in the room think. You tell me what you need, and I'll we'll mm -hmm. figure that out. But sometimes that internal conversation is really helpful. Because I don't think we always know what the other person's going to say. And sometimes we think we're right or the architect thinks they're right or the, and maybe everybody's right. Or you hear right. a different perspective and yeah. it does change your opinion. It does. Yeah. Yeah. And so just maybe having that internal kind of team building and getting, getting that kind of charrette brainstorming mm -hmm. information on the table gets those viewpoints. And I find that when we go in the room, um, it's a much more fluid process, yeah. and the client appreciates that because then they You're maximizing their time. It does maximize their yeah. time. Like, don't waste my time asking me a hundred questions when I'm running a hospital. As we all know, the world, as we've discussed in many different things here, <laughs> already is an ever-changing place. And some of the technology innovations that are happening right now, what impact is that having in planning? And the first thought I have is, of course, with AI, but I know there's other things going on. What are some of the considerations for future-proofing? Maybe future-proofing isn't the right term, but for mm -hmm. healthcare facilities. But the biggest thing that I've seen is technology makes things easier if it's done correctly. It makes it harder if it's not. And so really thinking about all of those low voltage concerns, I think that's the category that, I don't know, those on the podcast, if I'm not putting that in the right category, I'm sorry. Um, but but it, low voltage and, and IT have become very important with the integration. When you're, when you're in design develop, like if you're doing planning and you're trying to plan for the future and you're trying to think about generators or what you want to occur and you're looking at their facilities and Kevin McNutt's team helps us with this 
is we rely on computers. There are healthcare people who have never charted on a piece of paper and don't understand that. And then when that computer system goes down, they have no idea what to do. And so a lot of times they don't do anything. We just continue to provide care. And so the downtime process is a consideration. I think placement of outlets, data, and items in a room or in an area, and where's your wireless, and where's mm -hmm. your data, and how does that all work together? Where is all that? And really trying to collectively, at least once or twice, look through that with a whole team. Because in a room, you know, historically you have a head wall and a patient bed and you're trying to plan for all that. But now they have a robot in the OR that has to be grounded. I need to bring in, you know, 30 to 40 pans of instruments on this side and you put the door there and then the outlets here. It's really trying to coordinate. And the low voltage piece has started to become much more important with all that, especially with AI, ambient listening and all of, because if you have ambient listening um, going on, so there, which is really like almost like a dictation system for the room, then you have to think about, okay, so is that fan affecting that? Is the beeping on the machine affecting that? Is like what noise level and making sure that's tuned correctly once everything is loaded in the right. room. And it takes a bit of mapping and you really have to have someone in tune to that. So the last thing I want to ask is we often hear about how important it is to put planning at the forefront. Can you share the value in seeking expert guidance and kind of wrapping this all up a little bit in, sure. in, in planning and the design process? I think that having people who have, I think it's twofold. I think having people who have functioned in a healthcare environment and had to deliver that care, just have a different perspective and think of things that maybe an architect or a designer might not always think of if they've not worked in that environment or had that opportunity. But it's also, we think in a more, I think the difference I see is I think when I'm sitting with my principal in a meeting or we're sitting and planning, they may say, well, we want, we want the campus to look like X and here's our idea. Like we want you to come on to campus. We want you to be able to park and be in there within five minutes. So that's the idea. And then the design starts or then the planning starts. Whereas my thought process to that comment is what are the 10 steps to get there? And as they're drawing, um, we go through those. So Tim Boschi and Tim Spence and I did this a lot on Houston Methodist when we were planning. And we did this in the evening when they would give feedback and then they would sit and draw and then they would turn their iPad around and say, what do you think? And then I would apply my thought process to right. it. And so how about this? How about, how about this? Yeah. And then, or I would, Tim Bashi would not let me draw on his iPad. But he <laughs> He's said, very protective. Don't touch iPad. the yeah. iPad. Um, but we, we did a lot of collaboration real time. And I think it makes, it makes it faster. Yeah. It saves the client money. You get an end result and you don't have rework. And you get some of your best ideas when you're working cross-functional like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it also develops trust and friendship and camaraderie. You, you want to have that. And then on the next project, you it's apply the better. same tactic. Yeah. Yes, it, it's better. So I really think planning saves time and money because you're not reworking things because we come up with all the ideas up front and say, what if, what if, what if, did you think of this? Here's what I think is important or here's what's important. Mm -hmm. Here's what the hospitals or the MOB or the ASC is going to think is important. Well, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure talking to you and yeah, I know I'll have you. you back on again in the future. 
Thank you. It's been a great morning. This was such a great conversation, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. So much to unpack when thinking about planning. I'd like to thank Terry for joining us on this episode of BSA by Design. If you're interested in learning more about master planning, please reach out to our team at BSA Life Structures. Visit our website at bsalifestructures.com. There's also a link in the show notes to contact us for more information. Be sure to subscribe to BSA by Design wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. We've got more content and stories to share through various platforms, so be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and X. That's going to do it for this episode. Join us again next time on BSA by Design. <music>